slowdown. Hello, and welcome back to our bi-weekly podcast, Slow News. By showing you actually the latest satellite picture of... You might have noticed that we have not been as active the past two weeks as we normally are. That's because we're working on a longer podcast on refugees, in particular on refugees that are trying to return to their home countries. As we are still working on that, we have made a slightly different kind of podcast for you today. We'll zoom in on four individual topics that have been covered in the news these past few weeks. It probably won't surprise you that one of Trump's snap decisions has come up in that context. Michal will start off today by telling you about the American president's decision to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, a very controversial move. After that, Juliette will tell you about the cyclone Idai, which ravaged Mozambique, Zimbabwe and Malawi in mid-March. The international media has largely been criticized for the lack of coverage on the natural disaster. For our third story, we'll stay on the African continent, but move to Rwanda, which entered the official commemoration period for the genocide against the Tutsi for the 25th time. Luisa will provide you with some insights on the stages of the genocide and focus very briefly on today's biggest challenge, denial. Finally, Denitza is going to tell you about the purpose of referendums, a debate which has reoccurred over these past few weeks in the context of Brexit. So, let's start with Trump and the Golan Heights. Slow down. Michal, will you introduce us? Yes, for sure. Um, on March 25th, President Donald Trump signed a presidential proclamation in which he formally recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. In a moment, I will sign a presidential proclamation recognizing Israel's sovereign right over the Golan Heights. Remarkable because until now, no country officially recognized Israel's sovereignty over the territory. The heights are situated between Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Israel. Under international law, they are still Syrian territory. On the 27th of March, Syria demanded a UN Security Council meeting to call resistance against the US decision. Also, Hezbollah, China and Russia spoke out against the US decision during the council meeting, as did Indonesia and South Africa, two countries that strongly supported the Palestinians, along with Kuwait, a US ally in the region. Other US allies, Britain and France, joined Belgium, Germany and Poland to declare that the European positions had not changed and that the Golan remained Israeli-occupied Syrian territory, in line with international law enshrined in UN resolutions. I'd like to now invite Prime Minister Netanyahu to say a few words. And Bibi and I have known each other for a long time. He's uh, another one who truly, truly loves Israel. I think I can say he also loves the United States. So before I sign the presidential proclamation recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, I'd like to ask Prime Minister Netanyahu to say a few words. Thank you very much. He did it again. First, he uh, recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and moved the U.S. embassy here. Then he out of the disastrous Iran Treaty and reimposed sanctions. But now he did something of equal historic importance. He recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. The leaders of the two countries, Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump, seem to be best friends, and they present a decision of recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Heights as a mutual benefit. 
Netanyahu called Trump's decision historic justice and gifted him a box of wine from the occupied territory. However, the territory throughout history has caused some tensions. Israel previously occupied the Heights in the 1967 Six-Day War and unilaterally annexed it in 1981. Let's briefly go over these events and see what it can tell us about Trump's recent move. June 1967. It was the time of pan-Arabism, with Gamal Abdel Nasser as strong and popular leader of Egypt. With Israel only existing for two decades, from the Arab perspective, Israel was an expansionist arm of Western imperialism. There was a widespread belief that Israel would sooner or later launch an attack on the Arabs in order to gain more territory for Jewish settlement. Nasser, who was having some prestige problems, for example due to his failure to bring out a durable and Arab union as well as economic problems, reacted upon rumors that Israel was preparing a large-scale military operation by mobilizing troops. He blocked Israeli access to the Straits of Tehran, the Israeli gateway to the Red Sea. Israel responded by military action. The situation allies Egypt, Jordan and Syria against Israel that received military resources from the US. The result for the Golan Heights was that the Israeli army gained control instead of the Syrians. Israeli forces now also occupied the Sinai Desert across the Suez Canal, as well as the West Bank and Gaza. Six years later, in 1973, politics had changed. Egypt had a new president, Anwar Sadat, and Syria also had a new leader, Hafez al-Assad. The two nations worked together to attack Israel. Israel, in turn, was still seen as the strongest arm in the region, so they underestimated Syria and Egypt's military power, especially because those had little support from the Soviet Union and other Arab states. On October 6th, that's on Yom Kippur, a Jewish religious holiday, Egypt launched an attack across the Suez Canal, in coordination with a Syrian offensive against Israeli positions on the Golan Heights. As the Israeli forces were overwhelmed, they were not able to mobilize their forces as fast as before. In the end, the outcome was that Egypt got back Sinai in return for recognizing the Israeli state in the Camp David Accords in 1978. But the Golan Heights remained under Israeli occupation. In 1981, Israel formally annexed territory in a move unanimously rejected at the time by the UN Security Council. With this complicated history, and it's even more complicated, delicate and embedded in history than I explained, it becomes clear that Trump's move is much more than only a change of language, from occupied to sovereignty. If we take, for example, Netanyahu's claim... And he did so at a time when Iran is trying to use Syria as a platform to attack and destroy Israel. Well, this not only shows that the Golan Heights are used as a political tool... Netanyahu is overtly addressing their enemy, Iran. But the Israeli president is using history to his advantage. Yes, the Heights once belonged to Israel, but before 1967, they were Syrian. Even before this, the territory belonged to different minorities and empires. It's definitely not the only example of a territorial dispute in the Middle East after colonialism. The move of the Trump administration can be understood in a few aspects. Firstly, the two countries are presenting it as a security issue. A great general said, always fight downhill, never fight uphill. A lot of battles are lost when these generals want to fight uphill, right? But this is, of course, never one-sided. And the small amount of historical background I presented already makes clear that security isn't so straightforward. On the other hand, the move is sending a message concerning international law. Recognizing Israeli sovereignty raises questions about whether seizure of territory is also okay in other situations. It potentially paves the way for Israel's annexation, in part or whole, of the West Bank. 
more broadly speaking, as it concerns international law, it might also have effects for other regions. Think of Crimea, Kashmir. Then, some media already suggest that the event might be signifying a changing U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, or that Trump wants to support Netanyahu's electoral success. This adds to the discussion, but I hope that the brief historical overview is a start of thinking about it critically. Now let's move on to Juliette, who will tell us about the impacts of Cyclone Idai on Mozambique, Zimbabwe and Malawi. Slow down. Tropical cyclone Idai made landfall during the night of 14th to 15th of March 2019 near Bera City in central Mozambique. The cyclone brought torrential rains and winds and quickly spread to two other countries, Zimbabwe and Malawi. As of the 6th of April, the official death toll stands over 800 people and it is expected to continue to rise as areas previously cut off become reachable by road. Not to forget, Hundreds of thousands are still displaced throughout the region. The storm caused riverine and flash flooding and the destruction of livelihoods and properties. In Bera, for instance, Mozambique's second city, more than 90% of structures are damaged or destroyed. The governments of Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe have mobilized their limited available financial, logistical and humanitarian resources for early response in the affected areas. The international community has sent in volunteer rescue workers and humanitarian aid to support local efforts. But how come people who are directly impacted by extreme and repeated storms are so badly prepared to respond to such disasters? That's the question that Antonio Matimbe, a Mozambican aid agency communicator, asked in a column published on the Guardian website. Here is a glimpse of his response. I quote, Living in survival mode creates a sense of fatalism in which tomorrow has to look after itself. End of quote. The other reason is that national, regional and international leaders do very little to address the devastating impact of climate change in the poorest region of the world. In Bera, hospitals, health centers and schools, all public places were ripped apart. The city just wasn't able to withstand the fury of the winds. In the countryside, the situation is even worse because communities are isolated by the lack of hard roads. African countries have been struggling to allocate parts of its resources to disaster preparedness due to various priorities in health, education, infrastructure and other sectors. In 2012, the African Union established the African Risk Capacity, ARC, to support the development of better risk management systems on the continent while simultaneously reducing the dependence of African countries on the international community for disaster relief. Well, Cyclone Edai allows us to question the effectiveness of such initiative. But we also have some good reasons to be optimistic. The journalist Simon Allison published an article for Mail and Guardian about the villages in Malawi that prepared for the floods and survived, in which he highlights great examples of natural disaster management. In the village of Tandi, for instance, no one died, no one was injured. And why? Well, probably thanks to the headman of the village named Biasi, who ordered everyone to evacuate to a larger village situated on higher ground. The population was trained to evacuate really fast because major floods happen way more often than before. Another trick citizens should know. It is better to find refuge on mango trees rather than on blue gum trees because these latter become slippery when wet. In Mozambique, Amelia, a young woman, gave birth to her daughter while clinging on for dear life in the branches of a mango tree. Both survived. In another village of Malawi, Shikeli, near the border with Mozambique, the memories of the last great flood are fresh. 
In 2015, 10 people died. This time, the village reacted totally differently. Despite 1,800 households and the surrounding area being affected, there were no casualties. Markson Becker from the Village Civil Protection Committee explained, I quote, It's because of the awareness we created. We told people to move in time. We had a plan. End of quote. The first step was to train residents to recognize the warning signs. Next, the committee created assembly points on higher grounds so that people would know exactly where to find safe areas. The village also appointed whistles who would climb into trees to check the direction of the water and warn the population. And all that worked. However, Cyclone Edai made landfall almost three weeks ago now, and a second disaster is unfolding as waterborne diseases spread. As of the 4th of April, more than 2,000 cases of cholera have been reported in Mozambique, according to the Ministry of Health. A mass vaccination campaign has started on the 3rd of April in Beira, where the majority of cases were registered since the beginning of the outbreak. For the population of Mozambique, Zimbabwe and Malawi, the situation is far from being solved. It is only the start of a physical, material and psychological reconstruction. Thank you for that, Juliette. We'll stay on the African continent, but move on to Rwanda. Luisa will tell you about the various stages of the genocide against the Tutsi and what is today's biggest challenge of genocide prevention and commemoration. Slow down. Last week on Sunday, Rwanda entered for the 25th time the official commemoration period for the genocide against the Tutsi. On April 7th in 1994, the brutal killing, or rather slaughtering, of the ethnic minority of the Tutsi began in the East African nation. Within the following 100 days, over 1 million people got killed. It was on July 4th, 1994, that the genocide was stopped by the back then Liberation Army of Rwandans who had earlier fled the country, led by today's President Paul Kagame. Now, a quarter century after one of the worst crimes against humanity, Rwandans and hopefully also the international community entered again a time of 100 days of remembering. This period is called Kwibuka 25. Kwibuka is to remember the genocide against Tutsi and to honor the victims and peacemakers to keep fighting against the genocide ideologies and ordinals against our history. For me, as a Rwandan, I flash back and decide how to sustain the better future that I wish to live in a country full of hope and happiness. However, the wish of Emmanuel Nyasenga from Rwanda, whom we just heard, which is to remember the victims and build a future full of hope and happiness, is often not respected. Unfortunately, this time of the year also always turns into an occasion for genocide deniers and revisionists. I will get back to that in a moment. First, I would like to give you an overview of what happened in 1994 in Rwanda. I therefore go along Gregory Stanton's genocide model that he published in 1996. Stanton is the founding president of Genocide Watch, which is the coordinating institution of the International Alliance Against Genocide, made up of over 60 organizations around the world with the mission of preventing genocide. In his paper, he introduced the model of the eight predictable stages of a genocide, to which he later, in 2012, added two more stages. Until today, the 10 stages serve as a logical model for analyzing the processes of genocide and thus for taking preventive measures. All 10 stages are transferable to the genocide against the Tutsi 1994 in Rwanda. 
In the first stage, called classification, the so-called ethnic groups of Hutu and Tutsi, mainly defined by former colonizers Germany and Belgium, were recorded in national IDs. The second stage, symbolization, happened by calling the targeted Tutsi minority traitors or enemies of Rwanda. Discrimination, the third stage of genocide according to the model, consequently happened through the structural exclusion of the Tutsi long before 1994, for example by denying them access to schools and jobs. But it wouldn't stop there. In the fourth stage, dehumanization, any human agency was stripped away from the Tutsi by calling them Inyensi, cockroaches. As we know today, the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994 was long planned. Organization, polarization and preparation, the fifth, sixth and seventh stage in Stanton's model, are seen, for example, in the structural diffusion of hatred in radio programs, eventually leading to the spread of the ideology across the country. Names of Tutsi were collected while military training of Hutu militia was undergoing. Killing became a normal job. 581 tons of Mashidis were imported and so-called blacklists with the Tutsi to be killed were written. The eighth stage of persecution, mass killings and chasing of individual Tutsi after April 7th had the only goal of full extermination, which is the ninth stage in the model. I can't go too much into detail for each stage, but you might have realized that there is a tenth stage missing. This is the one I want to focus on for the last three minutes of this part of our podcast. Stage number 10, according to Stanton's genocide model, is the stage of denial. Of course, some perpetrators have denied and still deny that they committed any crimes. According to Stanton, the response to denial is punishment by an international tribunal or national courts, which is exactly what happened. The United Nations founded the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Until its dissolution in 2015, 61 cases were put on trial at this institution in Arusha in Tanzania. Simultaneously, almost 2 million trials were held locally in Rwanda in the Gataka courts, a communal legal institution which has been internationally praised for its implementation. But the denial heavy on this year's commemoration events is rather coming from other sides. Until today, most of the international media do not accept to name the genocide against the Tutsi 1994 correctly. In most reporting, journalists still call it the Rwandan genocide, which inherently gives place to revisionist theories, for example about a double genocide. Popular Western deniers, for example, accuse the Liberation Army, which is now the ruling party Rwandan Patriotic Front, of genocidal acts against the Hutu, and at the same time deny that it was a genocide against the Tutsi. Other conspiracy theories exist about who shot down the plane, carrying the back then Rwandan president Juvenel Habyarimana and his Burundian counterpart in the night of the 6th to the 7th of April, which is considered the starting point of the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994. Deniers go as far as saying that today's president Kagame provoked the genocide against his own people for the sake of coming to power. All of those revisionist statements are not based on any facts. But instead, facts we have today are consequently ignored. For example, official numbers show that Rwanda lost over 1 million souls within the 100 days of hell. But most international media still stick to the number of 800,000 victims. The list of examples of denial, unrespectful and even wrong reporting and intended spread of genocide ideology and revisionist theories is much longer than I can present here. Bilateral relationships, such as the one between Rwanda and France, are heavily affected by these. But for now, 
what I would like you to take away from this podcast are two key points. First, educate yourself about the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994. The best way to do so is listening to Rundins and reading some of the many books Brave Survivors have written and Rundins Golas published. The worst way to do so is to think Hollywood or Netflix productions such as Hotel Rwanda or Black Earth Rising are historically correct, because they are not. Second, use your platforms to stand up against denial with the knowledge you gained just as I did now. Especially as the international community knowingly failed to prevent or stop the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994, this is the least we can do today. This is also the only way we can prevent another genocide to happen anywhere in the world. And it is especially important in a time where again politicians like Trump can, live on camera, call humans animals. Thank you for your insights, Luisa. We'll now move on to the last part of our podcast. Slow down. You've probably heard a lot about Brexit in the news lately. Don't worry if you're tired of hearing or reading about it. We won't talk about Brexit today as such. What we want to do, though, is to take a more general perspective and talk about the purpose and effectiveness of referendums. Why is it that governments decide to hold referendums in the first place? And what are the pros and cons of doing so? We also want to talk about why referendums aren't always a good idea and why they might not always be as democratic as they may seem. Experts report that there have been somewhere around 600 referendums worldwide since 1973. During the 1970s only, around two were held each year in Europe. Now, this number is closer to eight annually. According to Matt Kvortrup, professor of political science at Coventry University, the number of referendums roughly tripled in the 1990s, when new post-communist states held referendums to let their publics decide on the kind of countries they would like to be. Since that time, the number of referendums has remained more or less steady. When you hear about referendums, you might think of Brexit as an obvious example. But there have been a lot of referendums in other parts of the world. Many of them have been held in the context of independence movements. Whether in Eritrea, Canadian Quebec, Catalonia or Sudan, referendums have been driven by national self-determination and the feeling that central governments are out of touch with marginalized provinces and populations. The other most common reason for holding a referendum is when the government has decided to make amendments to a country's constitution. In democratic states, the public must be consulted for constitutional changes before the government can implement them. But referendums are not always about independence or constitutional matters. They can be about many other things as well. For example, the referendum in Ireland in 2018 was on annulling the ban on abortion. With a 64% turnout, women have since been allowed to get abortions in Ireland. But if referendums allow citizens to express what they want for their country, and if all eligible voters can participate, then why isn't the referendum always a good idea? Well, according to Charles Patty, for example, who's a professor of politics at Sheffield University, referendums allow politicians to get a sense of what the public thinks about an issue. Especially when the referendum reflects a clear opinion, it can pretty much settle a decision and help legitimize changes that will have significant consequences. It's a form of direct democracy. However, there are problems with referendums. 
One problem is that they only give voters a yes or no option to complex questions, and so they don't always reflect the various nuances or wider consequences of a decision. Also, we can't always anticipate that the public will have expertise in niche political or economic issues and that they will base their decision on deep understandings. One example of overcoming this can be a practice found in Switzerland, where every voter gets a booklet with stats and data, enabling them to make an informed decision. Another issue with referendums is that they bypass elected representatives by submitting a proposed law or other measure to a direct popular vote, which might just let citizens vent their frustrations with the government. However, these frustrations might be fueled by populist claims that, as we know, are not necessarily representative of facts. For these reasons, a common slogan nowadays is, if you don't know, vote no. I see. Be that as it may, surely a referendum is still a very democratic form of voting, right? Well, one of the strongest arguments for referendums is that they offer voters a way of directly engaging in democracy. However, lower participation in referendums means they are often actually not truly democratic. Studies have shown that, in general, referendums inspire lower turnouts than general elections, meaning that referendum results are rarely a well-balanced reflection of popular opinion. Brexit, for example, is a good illustration of the tensions surrounding the concept of a majority opinion, or vox populi, the voice of the people. See, three years ago, the UK voted to leave the EU, but a portion of those who voted yes have changed their minds in light of recent developments. Studies have now demonstrated that since the referendum, public opinions have changed considerably. Since the first vote, the public perception of Brexit talks being handled badly has risen by over 50%. At present, the average level of support for the two options is remain with 54% and leave with 46%. This means that Britain is now moving forward with a decision which is no longer representative of the majority opinion. This raises another important question about referendums. When there is a generational difference in opinion about the issue at stake, do both opinions weigh equally? Or, to put it more diplomatically, how big a majority is necessary for the result of a referendum to be seen as valid? In the cases of very close turnouts, like 45 to 55, for example, it could be argued that this might not be a fully representative result. Especially in the case of Brexit, younger generations were significantly more anti-Brexit. It has been discussed that because they are the ones who will have to deal with the consequences of Brexit in the future, their opinion should have been taken into account. Thank you for your insights, Denitza. This has been a small tour of different news around the world. We hope that we've managed to give you a better understanding of some of the headlines that have surfaced in the news these past few weeks. Please have a look on our website for references of the sources used in this podcast. We'll be back in a month with an in-depth podcast on refugees returning to their home countries. In the meantime, we wish you a happy Easter. And even for those of you who don't celebrate Easter, we hope you enjoy good chocolate eggs and the public holidays. Thank you for tuning in. By showing you actually the latest satellite the picture of Slow down. <laughs>